to, to check that one out. It's been one of the most downloaded sermons in... Re- no, it has been the most downloaded sermon in months. A lot of people watching it, listening to it, and sharing it with people because it's really helpful. As a matter of fact, last Sunday night we did a real quick summary of it to remind us of what God's doing there. Um, anyway, I share that with you because that sermon has changed my perspective on myself more than any I've ever spoken. And the one last week was just real powerful too. If you listen to one last week, it's only 18 minutes long. Who doesn't have 18 minutes, right? Alright, Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 says, What you all just said, do all things without complaining and disputing. Oh, goodness. Or grumbling and arguing. Or negativity and passivity. My favorite, favorite line that people don't like is, when someone complains, I say, it looks like someone's volunteering to be the solution. When my daughter says, there's a there's something on the floor, I say, it looks like you volunteered to pick it up because you noticed it. It's God's way of showing you that you saw it. It's His way of teaching you to do something about it. And I'm going to take a little bit of an aside here to move us forward. A lot of folks don't know this, but if you think about it, you'll go, absolutely. And that is that each of the emotions we feel have a healthy, positive reason. We use them negatively sometimes, but they have a healthy, positive reason behind them. Now you might say, well, give me a good example. One of them is anger. The purpose of anger is not to destroy things. It's to motivate you enough to give you enough inner strength and desire to change things. I'll give you a real good example of how this works. Jesus was angry and got the junk out of the temple. Cleaned it out and put it back the way it was supposed to be. One day I came home. This was early on in my wife and I's marriage. And the living room was just full of boxes and junk. And I said, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. And I got mad. And I cleaned it all up. I put boxes here. I cleaned stuff up. Put it over here. Put it in crates. So I'll show her. When she got home, she goes, oh, that was so sweet. And I'm going, I was mad. It wasn't sweet at all. <laughs> but she thanked me for it. Um, because she didn't have time, apparently. But she saw it as an act of service, not an act of frustration. But truly, when God has given us the gift of anger, doesn't it fuel us and, and give us this, i, I got to do something now type thing. That's the thing where God is giving you the vision, if you will, to see something that needs to change and the energy and strength in that moment to begin to make a change. In a positive way, it changes the world. In a negative way, it destroys things. So you can see how anger can be positive and negative, right? And it's the same with other emotions. Like, I used to think that depression was 100% completely bad. I used to think that. But it's not true. Depression can be a sign that there's something that's amiss inside of me. That there's something not working. That there's a problem that is in my life that I can't resolve, and I'm having this state of low energy and futility. And so, depression in its worst state is, 
I don't want to feel this pain. I want to get rid of it. I don't want to be here anymore. That's what depression does at its lowest point. It thinks life is pointless and it's always going to be this way. But the purpose of that feeling of depression is to let you know there's something out of whack. And you need to look at it and talk to someone or somebody and see if you can get those things back in line in your life because there's something that's not lined up. You see that? Uh... I was trying to think of a few other emotions that we use, uh, sometimes appropriately, sometimes inappropriately, and one of those came up came up a little bit in in the sermons recently, and that was jealousy. Now, folks say, "Well, jealousy—that's a bad one," but God's a jealous God, so how can it be bad if God is jealous, right? And if the spirit in us yearns jealously, it can't be bad. It has to have a positive and a negative. Jealousy, in its worst point, is when someone says, you're looking at my wife, you're not going to do that anymore, and they get mad. And they want to do something about this person because they feel intimidated and fearful. Because they think someone's going to take their wife, or whatever. Well, that kind of jealousy, or someone has something better than me, and i got to be like them, so I'm jealous of what they have. That kind of jealousy is based on fear or disapproval. Jealousy in its right sense is when that comes about that something is taking the loyalty away from where it needs to be. If our loyalty isn't toward God, He's jealous toward us to be back toward Him. And if our loyalty isn't toward us, our spouse, then that spouse is going to see that and be jealous because your loyalty is somewhere else because your, your affections are in the wrong place. It's saying that the loyalty has got to go to the right area. Right? right? Makes sense. All these stuff line up. So when it says here in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing, arguing, uh, debating, those kinds of things. When those things happen, we know that there's something out of line in the spirituality of the folks who are doing it. If two folks are arguing, they're not spiritually connected, okay? Not, not positively. And if they're complaining or criticizing, they're not encouraging and uplifting because something inside of themselves or in that environment is not godly. And so it's a, it's a sign to say something needs to be looked at and changed either in the person or the environment to make things line up with God's work and word. How many times have you seen someone go, you know, I don't like the way we do things around here. Nothing works right. Nobody's doing anything. And they do all this stuff, right? And they complain. I, I used to work at a place like that. Nobody does their job right. You ever heard someone say that? What are they really saying? I feel like I'm in an, in an organization that's in unmanaged. Or the management isn't doing things right. Or I feel like I don't make a difference or we don't make a difference. And in that situation, does it not make sense to you that it would be good to look at all of the things that could cause that and see if there's some truth that maybe people aren't buying in because they don't believe or they haven't clearly heard the vision of what they're trying to do together. Here's the truth. No one's going to work real hard at what they don't believe in. 
You'll get time, clunch, time clock punchers, but they're not going to work hard at it. And they'll complain all day long because there's no buy-in into the greater vision. One of the things here at this church, for an example, is uh, the court thing out there. It's, it's like it's like glacier slow right now, trying to make that happen. It feels like, God, do we really want to do this? And he keeps saying, yes, 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 yes. We keep seeing more people coming out there and saying, yes, this is what we need to do. And And at times it feels like there's no buy-in to it because they don't see the bigger vision. You know what I mean? They don't see that mudding for missions over uh, Cunningham has hundreds and hundreds of people coming to this thing to play volleyball in the mud. Now let me take you back in my mind, because I wasn't there, many years ago when it was first proposed. And, and someone said, yeah, we think we're going to put a volleyball pit out there instead of sand. We're going to put dirt in it and mud and let kids get muddy and we'll raise money that way. And people are going to go, are you crazy? Who's going to want to do that? Ain't nobody going to want to do that. That's stupid. You're going to have to get them cleaned up. They're going to drag mud in the church. There's going to be mud everywhere. We can't do that around here. You're going to have a muddy church. That's exactly the conversations that are probably going through people's minds when that thing first started, right? If you try to pull that thing away from there now, they're going to crucify you. There's so many people that come to that. So the, so this thing here, what I've been talking about, I'm looking at the long-range picture and going, we got to do this because the long-range picture is great. But the short-range picture looks like nothing. doesn't make sense. We don't have anybody. But that's not true. We've already got several teams that have enlisted if we would just get it done. And those people don't know Jesus. This is how we begin to reach people. And where do you think they're going to go to church? Somewhere. Probably the closest one, and we're one of them. And they might find that this is a good place to go. But if we don't have that, what are we going to do? Well, I don't buy into that. Why are we doing this? It doesn't make any sense. And so we complain, we dispute, we argue instead of going, God, we want your people to find you. And this is one way that we believe you can do that. When that happens and people buy in, things happen. Amy, I wasn't here when the idea for the food pantry first came. Was there everybody going, yeah, we'll be there. We're all going to get together. We're going to unload and do all And everybody excited. Yeah, we, we didn't. Yeah, exactly. But now, when we look at it, what do we say? We don't know how it works or how God has let us continue to do that for so long. How God has let us do that for so long. Because we keep looking at it from our eyes rather than the eyes of God saying, I'm going to do this and, and you'll be amazed. I'm amazed. Every week, all the people, one week we had 60 families come through. First, I think it was the first week back or the second week back this year. 60 families, 60 boxes of food, and we're all going, we don't have enough food. And there was enough food. God has never failed to supply what He desires for us to have happen. And yet, we complain and murmur and, and question God. It reminds me of the Israelites in the wilderness. Grumbling and complaining. No food, no water. Uh, 
All we, and now you're giving us food, all we get is quail and manna. We're sick of it. That's how it was. They never wanted to trust God. And here, we have the same situation and we find we're just as stubborn as they are and stiff-necked as they are because God is still God and we're still people. Did you think in this day and age that people would all of a sudden mature emotionally and mentally and spiritually simply because we're not the Israelites who wandered the wilderness? <laughs> I don't think so. So, there's going to be complaining and disputing. But that is to show that people have not bought into the vision so you know where to work at. Establishing vision. Establishing hope. Establishing confidence that the plans that we have are God's plans. People will resist anything they don't understand or don't believe can work. But when they see it working, all of a sudden there they are volunteering, helping out and doing all... Man, this is great, man. I love this. And, and, and three weeks before they're going, this ain't going to work. It's just how it works with people. And that's the truth. Because we have to settle in ourselves that just truly is a good thing. And so if we don't do that, we begin to complain and dispute. Now when you hear yourself doing that, you have to ask yourself, where have I not bought in? What don't I believe is true in this situation or that God can do? And that's what we do, isn't it? We do. And if, and if you look at it and you say, well, look God, I've been faithful, I've been praying, and you haven't answered it yet. What are we saying? God doesn't care. God's not doing anything. He's not a listening God. We're complaining and disputing because we believe that God hasn't bought into our plan. And we also say that we don't trust that God's plan, which He has for us, is quick enough. And that's when we need encouragement and faith to hold on a little longer. He says in the Scripture, wait, do not tarry, the answer will come. I will tarry, but the answer will come. God will never be late, but He will never be early. And your idea of on time with God may not be... <laughs> Something that God says is on time, but God's timing is perfect. And so, so if you trust that, and you say to yourself, you know, I don't understand why God is not answering this so quickly, but I trust Him. I don't know why God's not doing anything, but I trust Him. My thought is, I don't know why we didn't get that first grant, but now I do. Because that first grant would have been the wrong amount and the wrong purposes. We didn't do enough work on it yet but I trust him and I stay the course and why does he say this in verse 15 why do we do these things without complaining and disputing or arguing and debating um, so we can become blameless and harmless oh goodness <laughs> that word uh, harmless can also be rendered as uh, innocent I wouldn't call it innocent though. But you might. And the reason that he says that it's blameless and harmless is because if you're no longer complaining and disputing, you've resolved the situation between you and God. You accept what God's doing and you're in line with it. 
That makes sense? You, you can't say, what's wrong with God? He's not doing anything. And at the same time, out of the other side of your mouth, say, I accept what you're doing, God. I'm okay with it. I'm willing to wait on your timing. Can't do both because you become double-minded and nobody knows what you really believe, right? So, if you trust God, you're not going to complain about His timing or dispute that He knows what He's doing. You're going to continue to bring your cares and petitions to God knowing He hears you and continue to understand that you have an audience with God at any time and every time. Mind of Christ will convince you of that, that sermon. You're smart. <coughs> I got a cough drop. Yeah. And so that's how we become harmless is our words are no longer spreading discouragement to other people who may be a little discouraged. Could you imagine um, somebody on the fence about... Um, Christ and a believer coming up and going, yeah, God's not answering my prayers and and that person knows you're a believer. And they go, well, if they won't answer yours, He certainly won't answer mine. I'm not a believer. So why should I even try? But that becomes a complaint and it becomes harmful. So our words need to build up. And the way they build up is we understand our own discontentment with things, but speak the truth of God into the situation. That First Peter chapter we've been reading in the morning says, speak as if you speak the Word of God every time you speak. That you're using God's voice. Not a God-sounding voice, but the heart of God when you speak. And it says, so blameless and harmless, children of God without fault. Fault in your words. Fault in your thoughts. Because we're in the middle of a crooked in perverse generation. And the last part of this verse is so, so, so good. If you've been studying this, Jerry, you know this is coming. It's among whom you shine as a light in this world. As a matter of fact, this, uh, this chapter heading, um, this section of the chapter heading is light bearers. One of the things that Paul is saying here is that we show God's light in a dark world. But at times, we forget that that's what we do. And at times, we don't think we're qualified or capable of being that. And here's how it comes out. Well, you may have said I did something for God. All I did was this. It was no big deal. Sometimes, like when I thank you for your desserts, you go, it was just a cake. And you dismiss it. But that's God's light to me. You blessed me. You, you bless people with your gift like that. That's light of God coming through you. And sometimes it's easy to say, well, all I did was made a dessert. No, you did it in love. And that is something that people see as God's love through you. Ginger knows I like no bakes. She almost always makes them. I don't know if it's because of me or because she can make them easy. I have no idea, but she does them right every time. I love them things, and they're, they're always gone by the time the day's over. And I'm not saying, oh, go ahead and make no bakes. I'm saying that. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, when I see those, my heart smiles. Because I go, oh, wow, Ginger did it again. Jerry, when you, when you talk about your joy for and being a part of the church and, and all those changes, 
you might just be saying, well, you know, I just came and I, I just talked about what God did. You know, I'm not really doing anything great. But God's light is coming through you. And, and people hear your witness to who God is by what you've said. Think when you decided to make this table for us when you first came here. That was a blessing to me. You'll never understand and comprehend the full depths of it. But it made me know that you love and you have the ability through your woodwork and gifts like that to show forth God's light. And you could say, well, that's just a piece of furniture. you know, no big... But it isn't just a piece of furniture. It's the work of God being done by His people. And everything that we do for God is showing forth God. And if we forget that, then we begin to become complacent and think what we do doesn't matter. Or it's insignificant compared to somebody else or what we think we should be doing because it comes easy to us. Brad's good at numbers and technical stuff. And uh, Tim's good at logic stuff and, and med medical stuff and praying and a whole bunch of stuff. And just a very wise. And each of us here have great gifts. Joe's a great Bible teacher. And Joe could say, well, I'm just a Sunday school teacher and I'm four or five guys and that's all it is. No big deal. But every Sunday, those men love what you do and they thank you for it and they appreciate it. And you shine God's light to them. It's a witness. We are light bearers. And the, the thing about it is if you don't know you are, you can stop doing it. You can discredit it. And think it doesn't matter. But it does. Because you don't know who that one person might be that you've done it a thousand times and that one person all of a sudden transforms their life and they're a new creation. Amy, when you share a smile with somebody one day, it might be the day that someone said to themselves, if I just see a smile today, one person smile at me. Just one that I want in my life. There's a story about a woman who said that. She said, if someone would just smile at me today, just one, I won't end my life. And not one did. And she tried to take her life, and she failed. And after that, she came to Christ and began to tell her story about share your smile, share your smile. Because you don't know the pain around you. But I promise you, a lot of this world doesn't know who Jesus is. They don't know. And the light that you shine is completely foreign to them because they're not used to it. Someone being kind for no particular reason, but that they are. Loving with what they do and not expecting anything in return. Oh, there's a lot of people going to question your motives. But if you love God, it'll shine through. So keep doing what you do. I want to encourage you tonight because we shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation now in that verse where he says crooked and perverse generation you might be thinking well that was that generation of 40 years there you know at the time of uh, Paul it is not he's talking about the generation that started at the birth and death and resurrection of Christ that goes until the return of Christ that generation is crooked and perverse but I would also not hesitate to say it goes all the way back to the days of Noah too. They were crooked and perverse too. 
It's every person's generation gradually becomes immoral. More immoral than the one doing before it. And that's just how it seems to go. But you can be different than them. Be apart, but different. In it, but not of it. And how do you do that? Verse 16, Hold fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, I have not run in vain or labored in vain. If I were to mess, uh, give this message a title, it would be the word of life. The word of life is something done in the name of Jesus Christ that is Jesus Christ. Present. Have you ever had a time in your life when someone spoke to you a word at the right time that just touched you and helped you get through something? You ever had that happen? That person was speaking to you the word of life. They were giving you the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, you've probably done it for another, whether you knew it or not. The sad thing about it is, is when we complain and argue and become negative about things, is we're less likely to look for opportunities to encourage. But the word of life, it says hold fast to that. In the next chapter, Paul's going to use the word katalambano. If you're not familiar with the word katalambano, it means holding on. And I'm going to give you a real good picture of what this looks like. Imagine that you're climbing up a rock face and you're holding on to the edge of a rock and you climb up onto a ledge and you see that you've come up so far and you look down and you realize there's no way to climb back down. So the only way to go is up. And so you start climbing up the rock face and all of a sudden the only thing you got to hold on with are your two hands because your foot ledge has broken off and your two hands are all that are holding you on that ledge and you got to pull yourself up with your arms to get on there. And you're going to go, well, I can't do that. I'm too old. I don't know how to do that. In the moment when your adrenaline kicks in, you can lift a car. So we don't know what we can and cannot do until stuff like that happens. But in that situation, holding on to that rock face, knowing that if your arms quit, you're going to let go and go straight down. That holding on, in that moment, you're not thinking, I wonder what my mom thought of me today. Yeah, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if anybody uh, is thinking I'm a good person. I wonder if people are thinking about me and, and wondering if I'm doing the right thing. In that moment, what are you thinking about? Hang it on! There's nothing else on your mind but surviving this thing, right? That word katalambano is that desperation there. And that holding fast that he's talking about right here is holding fast to the word of life is this desperate holding on. That I'm going to hold on to Jesus and it, and if everything else falls apart, I'm still holding on to Him because everything else falling apart is like the world caving in around me and He's the ledge I'm holding on to. And I've got to get up there. But here's a true story. At the moment that you realize He's all you have to hold on, 
He will also hold on to you and lift you up. The Scripture says, if you humble yourself before God, He will lift you up. And I don't necessarily mean physically, but I mean when you hold on to Him and you focus on Him alone in your life, He's going to lift you up to the levels where you need to be. He's going to lift you up out of the miry clay, says uh, the Psalter, David, in the Psalms. He lifted me up out of the miry place. He lifted... God didn't just grab David and pull him up out of the mud. He's not talking about it. It means He lifted him up out of the broken places in his life. And so He says, I'm going to hold fast to God because He's the only one that understands what I go through. He's the only one who can move me through it. And He's the only one who can transform the world and the unsafe places around me. And when David was saying that, at that point in his life, King Saul was after his life. As long as King Saul was alive, he was after David's life. And at that point, the miry place was King Saul after him. And he said, only you can deliver me, God. And he's your king, so I can't touch him because he's your king. So I need you to lift me out. And in that moment, David said, I'm holding fast to God. You're my only hope. You're my only help. And you will lift me out of the miry mess. How different would our speech be, our conversations be, if we were holding on fast to Jesus and then speaking out of that? If someone's, I'll give you an example. Real simple. If someone's going, well, do you think God can really do that? All I know is I love Him and I'm not letting go of Him and I'm going to trust Him in everything because if I let go, I got nothing. So I'm going to trust Him with everything. But, but do you think He's going to help you? All I know is I'm not letting go. I trust Him and I believe He can pull me through because nobody else can or will. Nobody else is qualified. But, but do you believe in Him? Do you trust that He's real? All I know is I'm holding on to Him and I'm not letting go. And I love Him and He loves me. And if He doesn't deliver me, I'm okay with that because I still love Him. And He knows what's best for me and I trust Him. In that situation, you know what holding fast is. And in the conversation, a person is trying to dissuade you from your belief that God's in anything. And all you're doing is holding fast. The Word of life. So you're holding on to the Word of life, but you're also sharing it. And how do you hold on to it? By sharing the truth of who He is with the world around you. By what you do, and not discrediting it as it's minuscule or minimal in the flight of other people's contributions. And Paul says he wants to rejoice in that. And he says, And if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now he's turned it around. And said, For the same reason, for the exact same reason, I rejoice that you're holding on and shining His light. You be glad for me. Because I'm doing it too. We're in this together. And I'm setting an example so you'll follow it. It's a kind of a confusing verse 17. That I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. A drink offering... If you did any research on it, 
You know what that is, right? Mm-hmm. It was uh, to empty the vessel. I would pour uh, Pharisee water would pour over the, the lamb or whatever the offering was when it was being burnt. And he was saying, he was pretty sure he was going to get out of jail, but if he didn't, because he was a Roman citizen, he would be beheaded. Mm-hmm. So, if he was beheaded as a martyr in the service of Christ, he wanted them to be proud of him like he was of them. Yes. Of the Philippians. Because if he gave his last drop, or the the vessel was empty, yeah. that he was doing it in the name of Christ. Yes. For them to stand fast, rejoice in trial, and imitate Christ. Because yeah. what happens with the drink offering, and Jerry's correct, they pour it on a lamb. That's that's significant. And if Paul says, I'm being poured out on a lamb, the, the, what I'm doing is on the lamb. I'm not doing... Doing it like my own volition. I'm not doing it because I want to do this. I'm doing it because I'm pouring myself out onto Jesus Christ. If that happens, that I'm poured out onto Jesus Christ as an offering on Him, it's on the sacrifice and service of their faith. That sacrifice and service of their faith is the Lamb that He's talking about. That He's being poured out on them. That he's doing it for them, that they would serve as the Lamb of Christ, and that that's a pretty powerful verse when you understand it that way. And if we can pour ourselves out the same way in our lives, I believe God can transform the world around us. And I don't just believe it; I know it. And we can do that here. That is the. End of verse through end of verse eighteen. Uh, in two weeks, we'll pick up at verse nineteen. Anybody have any thoughts, comments, ideas, suggestions? Uh, clarity needed. Next Sunday is the Super Bowl, and we don't compete with that. Right. Right. Church.